0: Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking to Keith Dowding, who is Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Political Philosophy at the Australian National University. His book, It's the Government, Stupid, is about how governments, particularly the US, the UK and Australian, blame social problems and social crises on their citizens by putting too much emphasis on personal responsibility rather than taking responsibility themselves. Hi, Keith. Hello. Hello. Hi, thank you for chatting to me today. Please, can you tell us about the book and why you wanted to write it?
1: Sure. Um, Well, the book argues that government continually blame citizens for the bad social outcomes which result from their own policies. So, for example, in the area of gun crime, we can see in the USA, which has this massive death um, and injury toll from guns, you know, they blame the bad guys or terrorists. When it comes down to accidents, they blame it on people not being careful enough with their guns. They don't blame it on their own gun policies. Or around the world, governments blame the obesity crisis on people for eating too much or eating unhealthy food or not exercising enough. They don't blame it on uh, poor regulations which lead food manufacturers to add massive amounts of sugar and sodium and trans fats to, to the manufactured food. When it comes to housing, for example, the young are told to save in order to be able to buy houses. And we're told that rough sleepers end up in the street because of alcohol and drug problems. Now, I argue that in all these areas, it's government policy that is the root cause of these bad outcomes. While we can assign responsibility to people for the choices that they make from the menu of opportunities which is available to them, that menu of opportunities is actually provided by society and government. Is the major actor in, uh, actor in society. What What was my motivation? Well, um, it's not just that I think the government should be blamed, um, but that I also feel you know my motivation was that it seems to me that social commentators and indeed political philosophers generally buy into this sort of cult of re- personal responsibility. They also blame people. So, despite its policy focus, I do see the book actually as one of political philosophy. Uh, as you said, I'm a professor of both political science and political philosophy, and I've, I've published about, you know, power and liberty and responsibility. But it seems to me that political philosophers spend too much energy on individual responsibility, not on government responsibility. Really, it's, you know, what motivated my writing in the book is to sort of point out the absurdities of the cult of individual responsibility um, in the light of, 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 of government policy.
0: Great. I think we can, I will unpick a lot of those ideas as we go through the questions here. I did, you've outlined the case studies you use in the book, which are guns, obesity, housing, gambling, um, and recreational drugs policy, and homelessness. Um, so why did you choose these particular case studies?
1: Yeah, um, well, I began with Gun crime, because as I said, it's relatively easy to sort of show that government regulation is associated with differential outcomes. Um, not only you know, mass murders and homicide generally, but also accidents and suicide. Um, the US regulations are very different to other countries, similar countries. Um, and it's not just the number of guns there. There are many European countries that actually have higher rates of gun ownership, but rather it's the regulations which lead to the ease of purchasing, the lack of background checks, the nature of weapons that can be purchased, all these things which are are correlated with um, with the high death rate. So it's not necessarily gun ownership
0: then that leads to a high death rate? Not
1: necessarily gun ownership. I mean, so one factor that that can be shown to to, uh, decrease um, accidents in the home is if you don't allow people who have any form of criminal record to not not own guns, there's fewer accidents in the home. Now, that's why. Well, probably because um, people... Uh, who are, um, have criminal records, petty criminal records, actually aren't as careful as other people. So they're just not so careful mm. about guns in their home. If mm. you, um, in some countries, uh, if you have a record of domestic violence, you're not allowed to own a gun. That has a big effect on yeah. gun use in the, ha- in the in the in the home, um, because a lot of you know gun crime is is you know violence caused through anger. And you pick up, it's easy to pick up a gun, you use it the gun's not there you can't use it or if it has to be locked up locked away um so these these sorts of factors actually have a big effect on 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 gun crime um so i I looked at that first um i then turned to obesity um partly because um it's relatively easy sort of it's a a quite a straightforward sort of issue um also you, you can easily see that the Increase in obesity in society over the last 50 years is correlated closely with the increase in manufactured food, fast foods. Uh, So it's quite a a good example. Um, It's also uh, one in which there's issues about personal responsibility and issues about, you know, should you blame people, fat shaming? Um, And I want, you know, I want to say, well, if you concentrate on regulations rather than telling people not to eat so much, you actually take away that kind of issue that it's it's not always individuals own responsibility that they're, they're eating but they're allowed to eat the manufacturers are allowed to sell them things which are bad for them what manufacturers do is you know they're, they're in a competitive market i don't sort of blame them really they they play with, with whatever rules they're given and they uh produce products which they know appeal to human tastes and those aren't just human tastes, sort of contingent. These are ones which are developed through our evolutionary history. So we like food which is highly saturated in salts. Yeah. Uh, because when it's hard to get, your body wants it. So mm-hmm. again, you know, uh, moving responsibility away from people and saying, well, you know, what we need to do is, is, to, is to control uh, what people eat through the food and what is manufactured. That will, that will have, have an effect. Homelessness is a more difficult problem. Um, housing policy, but again, governments have changed housing policy over the last 50 years. They've had fiscal policies which have um, encouraged home ownership, but that's not, we call it home ownership, but a lot of houses, people buy for investment purposes now, for second homes, for renting out. Um, uh and this, of course, uh, uh, increases house prices overall for, for, for other people who like to buy a home to live in. Um, and it's creating a rentier class, which is you know, making money from renting the houses to other people. At the same time, government has got out of the business of providing social housing, so private, private renting. Um, but now it's got the case in Australia particularly, uh, the tax incentives to own properties, even if you can't rent them. You know, it's worth your while owning something. It's gaining in it's gaining in value, even if you can't get anyone to rent it. Sydney's got a lot of uh, of empty properties, which are there. People who invested in them. There are homeless people. People can't afford houses. Can't afford flats. But there's properties there that are empty. So th- this is a sort of policy which which they have created incentives for people to do this. So those are the sort of three that I look at in terms of you know government responsibility. I then look at. One's I haven't mentioned gambling, um, which is again government has actually deregulated, but um, uh, you know it wants to control gambling, um, which is a bit more problematic in my thesis. I I do I, I believe that the relaxation of gambling laws is a good thing, but it's also created a gambling problem. So there are certain responsibilities for government there. And then there's recreational drugs, which I look at. Precisely again, because it's kind of the opposite of my thesis. I'm saying, well, government regu- highly regulates here, but in fact, uh, drugs policy is failing, and it should be, uh, uh, and it should be um, uh, basically uh, essentially an argument for a form of of uh, legalization of drugs. So, but again, you know, sort of a, contrary to my thesis. So I'm trying to show why this isn't why this isn't um, a, a contradiction. Yeah, again,
0: I'm going to ask you about that one later. Um, sure. So in terms of. His studies you may have considered and didn't use did you consider yep. going through climate change and policies around that or any other areas that this also applied
1: i, I did uh, there, there were various other issues i wanted issues which um uh you know were not so big that it's difficult to pin down responsibilities global climate change is not just a response to individual governments but all governments yeah um so, again, it's it's an obvious sort of example. I mean, I say that, you know, government should take responsibility for its policies. So if policies are bad, they should take blame. But if they've got good policies, then they can also take credit. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's the responsibility. That's a good
0: point. Yeah. You know,
1: it's, not just, it's not just all bad for government. Government can take credit for certain things. And I'm indeed, suspect, you know...
0: They probably do take credit, don't they, when things go well?
1: Oh, they certainly do, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm not too worried about them in that sense. Yeah. Um. So... You mentioned the um, philosophical side of the book. Um, So I wanted to talk about that first. And this idea of individualism and the cult of personal responsibility. And it's a really powerful ideology and political philosophy that we don't really question. We don't question the way governments shift the blame onto us um, because it's so ingrained, I think. What's the history behind this? In the book, I think you talk about privatisation and the shrinking of the state in the 1980s.
1: Yeah, I mean, the attack upon sort of paternalism, the nanny state and so on, and welfare state really grew up in the 1970s. Um, there was thought to be a crisis of governance there um, at that time. So there was a, a move towards saying what we need is more market solutions um, to privatise, you know, national, uh, nationalised industries to, to privatise those. Uh, and that just created a, a process where you keep on Giving more and more things to the market, so uh, uh, deregulation was the sort of key word. I've always felt that deregulation is really a, a misnomer. It's always re-regulation. You always have regulations. Mm. Uh, you might change the rules, but you're still having different rules. You yeah. just need to, the, the nature of these rules. I think that even if you think, well, you know, markets are good in the right place, there are certain social policies that I assume people want. People want, say, they want, you know, to be healthy. People. Yeah do want decent housing, not only for themselves, but their for, for their society. People don't want to be threatened by, you know, by guns and, and so on. People don't want their families or their friends' families being ruined by gambling or indeed by, you know, by drugs. They don't want the environment destroyed. So, you know, there are, there is a, a, a place for the market. You know, we don't want government to be supplying us with our food, telling us what to eat or, you know, having, mm. you know, government, uh, you have to buy your food from government shops or you know you know there's no, no, no kind of argument like that in the book this is certainly room for market but the argument is is that actually where we're having bad social outcomes and where those social outcomes have got worse over the last 50 years we can trace that to change in government policy and it's that policy which i think should change and what government has done under this sort of cult of responsibility this ideology of of freedom and and responsibility has put the blame for the worsening society uh on on individuals
0: so you're not um the book isn't about trying to justify a nanny state then i think some people might put that forward as a critique
1: no um i mean nanny state arguments really apply to the sorts of incentives for people not to make decisions at all so You know, it might apply to, well, if you give people too high welfare payments, they won't bother looking for work. But I'm looking at sort of incentives to change people's incentives to make good decisions or to make better decisions or to realize that the regulations set the menu of opportunities that you have so that it's still about people having opportunities and still about people making decisions. But it's, you know, well, look, actually, in one sense, if government regulates what manufacturers can put in into their food why is that a nanny state for, for consumers that's telling manufacturers you have to make good products is it a nanny state if if uh, a, a government uh, you know has health and safety regulations over you know the sale of cars to make sure that cars have decent brakes and uh, and so on i don't think so it seems to me that actually government having these campaigns for, you know, eating healthily and look after your children and what are you feeding your children? seems to me that's actually much closer to, an, you know, the nanny-ish sort of tightening up of, you know, nanny sort of uh, situation uh, that turns ch- the citizens into children, telling them what they, what they should do all the time, lecturing them. That seems to me more, like a nanny state, not regulating, you know, what manufacturers can produce.
0: That's true. I suppose it gets more difficult when you're telling people perhaps that they there's more regulations about gun ownership and maybe it's more difficult to own a gun or maybe it's more difficult to buy a second home. It's
1: well, easy maybe. To to um, well, I don't know. I mean, sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So we make it more difficult for people to buy a second home or we make it more expensive, but that, we're doing that in order to make it easier for someone else to buy a first home. Yeah. So there's a sense in which, you know, okay, some people will lose out some people will gain, but the changing of the regulations over the last 50 years, has made it easier for people, you know, incentivized people to, to, to buy second properties in order to make a profit out of them. So mm. you know, those, they have gained through the changing regulations. I'm saying, well, let other people gain through changing the regulations again. What I'm suggesting is that those regulations we had in the past actually produce better social outcomes than the ones we have now.
0: it's about giving more people a better menu of choices isn't it rather than just a few people having a great menu and then lots of people left with only one or two options So choice is really central to the argument of the book isn't it and one of the key messages is that we're limited by the range of options that governments present to us and you say people are not responsible for their choices when all the choices are bad. I think we've kind of largely covered that, but is there anything else you wanted to say on that point?
1: You just mentioned guns. I mean, so again, I mean, one of the things that happens in the USA when people talk about tightening up gun regulations is, you know, the NRA immediately says they want to take our guns away from us, but um, if you tighten up regulations, you say, yeah, well, we're making it more difficult for people with a criminal record to have guns, We're making it more difficult for people with a record of domestic violence to have guns. Yes, we might mean that if you want to buy a gun, you can't go out that afternoon and purchase one. You know, you might have to go through an assessment and, and you might take two or three weeks. That's not taking your gun away from you. It's actually taking guns away from people who we might think, shouldn't be having guns. And if you're a person that thinks you should, you should have a gun and you're not in any of those categories, why would you be threatened by these these regulations?
0: Why do you think so, people are threatened by the regulations?
1: Well, I mean, I think there's a, the, the the debate in the US is turned into a straightforward um, gun regulations means they want to take our guns away. It's a very so it's just argument.
0: oversimplified then. Yeah. Um. So... As human beings, we're subject to forces beyond our control sometimes. So, we talked about um, evolutionary characteristics, mental health, and in terms of gambling and drugs, addiction. Mm-hmm. And that may limit the amount of personal responsibility we're able to take and the amount of choices that we have. Do you think that governments take this into account?
1: Yeah, I mean, the main argument in the book is, is, doesn't concern what we might call internal elements to individual responsibility um it's about how government set incentives for people but you're right um you know we're well aware that our brain chemistry can go astray um and addiction whether it's drug or gambling uh, uh, you know addiction is well attested so um you know we know a fair bit about the chemistry of the brain that leads to addiction um so government does understand this in certain areas it certainly you know justifies its its recreational drug policy in those grounds Also, um, you know, we know about addictive gambling, but governments do work with, they do recognise this, and they do work with addictive gamblers. And so, you know, there's a lot of help in Australia, particularly, to work with the gambling industry. There are problems, though, that whether or not these issues are really kind of taken seriously enough. One of the problems in the gambling field is that much of the research which is carried out is funded by the gambling industry. Yeah. So that doesn't mean to say that the academics doing it uh, are not doing good research as far as it goes but they're not necessarily asking the right questions or the gambling industry doesn't want certain f- questions funded. So it seems to me that far too much research on gambling is about curing problem gamblers and not enough about how we stop people becoming problem gamblers in the first place.
0: So there is addiction and things like that are taken into account, but still the blame is so, with the individual. I think, so look,
1: yeah, so the gambling it? industry knows how to, how, to get, how to get you addicted to a gambling machine. It knows exactly, if you think of a one arm bandit and you think about where you pull the arm, it knows the optimal pay time to give you, tell you whether or not you've won, between you pulling the arm and... It's telling you whether well, you won. It's had experiments. It knows if it does it too quickly, it's not so satisfying. If it takes too long, you don't gamble as much. So it knows the optimal time. You used to have this thing where the electronic gambling machines—you know—they're not; they don't have rollers now like they used to, where mm. they roll around and you could, you know, you could see you almost won. But these electronic gambling machines look as though you've almost won every time, and that's deliberate mm. to, to do it. Or what they do even more so now is that they have multiple; they, they facilitate multiple gambling machines. So you can gamble on ten machines simultaneously. That basically mm-hmm. means that you win every time you play. A couple of those will be winners, but you're losing overall. Now they've not known all that. They do it in order to get people to gamble more, and actually, they, this creates gambling addiction. Now, government doesn't 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 kind of regulate that side of it. What they do mm-hmm. is to say when people are when people are addicted, what can we do to help them? And the gambling industry then will work with people. Um, it's, not it's in the their wrong interest. way
0: around isn't
1: it Yeah. No, it's not in their interest actually to, to worry too much about, to, to want people to carry on with gambling addictions because they've actually built up debt so in the end they might even be paying what they owe them so it's yeah. it, it, the research has been Kind of biased because it's it's funded by the gambling industry, and again, government has sort of allowed this to happen. I mean, there are academics, there are you know, there is there is research on this which points to, points at what's happening, but government, you know, is really it, it, uh, um, focusing on the wrong kind of re- regulation. To go back to food, that you know, again, you know, we know that there are these evolutionary effects. We know that actually, you know, you can if you have high levels of sugar, actually, you know you can get withdrawal symptoms from it, much like you can with opioids and opioid addiction and so on. So, again, government doesn't really take that seriously enough, I think, in its its funding.
0: No, because it's fueling that addiction with the food and the gambling, and then only kind of partially dealing with the outcomes of that for some people, and leaving everyone else feeling like it's their fault that they're in this situation some
1: just also disagree with each other so you do find there's some disagreement about how much obesity is caused by lack of exercise and how much it is the sort of things i've been talking about but it seems to me that we're not sure the precise proportions right we know that we should mm. take more exercise you know but that's not an excuse for not doing something so often government says well we don't know yet you know, how 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 much of a problem is, is caused by it. well if we've got to wait to find out the precise amounts or you know so one of the things is that we shouldn't use the fact that scientists don't all agree with each other as an excuse for doing nothing we should look at what we think would have an effect given this given our scientific knowledge and do and, and um, regulate using that. do you think
0: governments sometimes use that to avoid regulating yes right okay <laughs> obviously the contrast between the government's policies on gambling that we were just talking about and those on recreational drug use are really interesting. So, um, despite the fact that gambling causes a lot of problems, they do take a relatively libertarian approach. But with drugs, it's a real paternalistic approach. Can you talk us through this and why it's significant and why it's so different in those two case studies?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to some extent, of, you might look at the history of the term in mean, gambling actually is, you know, has has one of the longest standing kind of paternalistic aspects of government. Actually, I think the first Mm. gambling act in the UK was sort of, you know, 1541 or something. Oh, was it? Okay. In the 19th century, there was a lot of um, legislation. Uh, In fact, they started legalizing games of skill at that time. Um, but, you know, the, the, these these laws were explicitly paternalistic. It was thought that, you know, gambling ruins families. And it's a great theme of 19th century literature, you know, how the family is ruined by the gambling. Yeah. Rise.
0: Okay. Yeah. This
1: was, this was very sort of paternalistic and very kind of, and there's a religious kind of element to it as well. Um, uh, um, if, if you think about... Um, uh, the idea of of unearned income and and uh, uh, you know uh, in, in Christianity this sort of idea of gambling is, is something which is so there's a sort of highly religious and sort of paternalistic element to it, which, which is longstanding. But the, we've we've relaxed this over time, um, In the big of relaxation was the two thousand and five Gambling Act in the UK. Um, Do you think it's been but, relaxed
0: because people make so much money out
1: of it? Well, well, I mean, I think it's relaxed because people actually believe that, you know, we became less religious, we became less paternalist, people could take responsibility. And again, I don't have a problem with some of the relaxation of the gambling laws. Um, But I do think that, um, you know, we need to be aware of the problems that are created, and that we need to understand how the industry is going to bring people in to make money that's what it does it's a you know they're in competition That's what they do mm. you can't blame them for doing it you can't blame the gambling industry for trying to get people to gamble as much as they as they do no like, it's, like the it's like food manufacturers isn't it yeah, yeah. exactly it's their jobs what they're supposed to do so um but you can say well okay we're gonna we're gonna regulate what you do to, to ensure that we can uh, stop the worst excesses of it Exactly. So you
0: blame the government. You don't blame the individual. You don't blame the industries, but you blame the government. Yeah. That's
1: right, yeah. Okay. I mean, essentially, the, part of the argument of the book, in a sense, is always the government's fault because the government is the one that creates the regulations. So in a sense, they can be blamed for everything. That's taking my argument to a little bit of an extreme, but it's kind of the underlying thing is that the way in which government creates regulations actually creates, you know, the incentives for the way in which everybody behaves.
0: So how then does that link to recreational drug use in the sense that they don't regulate it because they don't decriminalize it? So... In well, a-
1: recreational... Yeah, if you look at the history of recreational drugs, I mean, these, this is relatively recent laws. I mean, the first laws... The, and also, if you look at why the first laws were brought in, so the first laws, well, the main laws, early laws to regulate recreational drugs, came in because the British government was worried about how drugs were affecting frontline troops in the first world war. Um, and if you, you know, you might've seen Peaky Blinders were the main characters there learn their drug use from being on the front line. Mm. And again, in the USA, um, you know, Nixon's war on drugs was worried about, you know, troops in Vietnam taking drugs. So actually the history of the drugs isn't particularly, uh, to, to, it was paternalistic to, to stop individuals ruining themselves and their families and again actually some of the early laws were almost explicitly you know you could see that it was explicitly racist so the early California laws sort of banned the smoking of opium which is the way in which the Chinese community took their opium but they, you're allowed to mix it with alcohol and take it as laudanum which is how you know white people and white ladies particularly <laughs> took their mm-hmm and indeed some of the early legislation actually you know mentions the fact that they want to stop you know white people going into chinese opium dens that's kind of explicit in the in the way the laws are framed so um but then there's international pressures you know for for, for the drug trade at the uk actually it's drug laws of 1960s it came under a lot of pressure internationally to, to to tighten up his laws and and you can see you know in the book i sort of go through how I can't remember exactly the figures now it's in the book but we've had two or three drug laws between about 1926 to about 1960 and then we have you know about 20 laws over the next 30 years so we are continually tinkering with the laws and changing them sort of tightening them up um and you know the argument of the book is actually our recreational drug laws have failed um you know it hasn't it hasn't reduced the drug taking it, it, more mm-hmm. people take it also you know, most drug deaths are coming actually because um, drugs are illegal. They're taking, they're dying because they're taking drugs which are much stronger than what they're used to, or they're dying because of the uh, additives which are in, in the drugs. Um, yeah. If they were legalized, and, and then of course regulated, then the drugs would be safer. The companies that sold them would have to try and ensure. Um quality of the drug they have to ensure that there was a consistency in what people were purchasing um, and uh, you know in, in that sense we might actually get on top of the drug problem more easily than 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 we do now um, and of course if we also you know we, we part of regulation would be not only governing the quality of drugs but also tax policy um, we, we would find that you know we might actually be able to to, to to um, through tax policies to kind of regulate the, the amount of drugs that people take and uh, uh, raise money to, to help those that do get into difficulties. That would be the kind of way in which because you, you still spend as much on, on as we do now, on, on controlling drugs, but it might be paid for by the taxation on these drugs. So, you know, I think our recreational drug laws are found, and you know, privately, many politicians and senior public servants and, and uh, police officers know this. I, I quote a few in the book
0: so by but by continuing to blame citizens who have drug pro- problems for their drug problems and governments not taking responsibility for them themselves they don't have to they let themselves off the hook of changing these laws but why don't they why don't
1: they change the laws do you think when the war on drugs has been for so long and made the claim that drugs are evil and people shouldn't be taking them that they—they're you know, not in the position. You know, it's very difficult for politicians to be the first to say the emperor has no clothes. They've been saying for so long drugs are evil. They can't—it's yeah. very difficult to turn around and say, "Well, actually, we've changed our mind. They're fine. You can take them, but we'll just—we'll just—we'll just regulate them." But that's—that's that's the conversation that we need to have. You know, that's yeah. that's, what we need to, that's what that's what we need to sort of convince people. Um, and indeed, there is a generational change because, um, you know. I, younger people now are much more likely to recognize that you know they've taken drugs they know that they don't necessarily ruin lives they know they can do but they know that you know they've taken drugs quite often actually people who do take drugs um take them in their teen years and their 20s and they quite often choose to come off them in their uh, late 20s and 30s Um, yeah
0: so
1: uh you know, it's very difficult to convince people that have taken drugs that, you know, drug trafficking is necessarily going to ruin your life because they know it, it hasn't ruined theirs.
0: Right. Just going back to what you said before about um, how difficult it is for the government to kind of stand up and say, stand, stand up and take responsibility for these things, because it does go against everything they've said historically. Um mm-hmm. I think that's one of the big calls to action that you'd kind of like to see from this book, isn't it? And I really, really like what you wrote at the end of um, the chapter on gun crime, where you say in the final word, um, those who want to defend lax gun regulation should stand up and take responsibility for what they believe in. They believe in the right to bear guns, to own assault weapons. They believe gun control infringes these rights. They believe those rights are worth the ensuing carnage, the massacres, the murders, the suicides, the accidents. They need to admit that fact and publicly defend it. That's exactly what governments should be doing, and then you can have progress. But just like with the drugs, it's hard to imagine a world where that would ever happen. But I thought that was really powerful when you said that in the book, because it's so clear that that's how they should be taking responsibility.
1: That's right. I mean, the point there is that, yeah, people say, well, you know, in the US, second um, member of the constitution, right to bear arms. Fine. If that's your interpretation of it, then take responsibility for the outcomes. It's not
0: even about admitting they were wrong, is it, necessarily? It's about saying we accept these consequences of the policies that we put in place.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you're prepared to say these are our policies, these are the outcomes, uh, and why I take responsibility of that, I'm not going to change them, then then, in a sense, you know, you can have my respect. I might think you're wrong. I might think it's a mm. wrong policy. I'll give, you the, I'll give you the respect of at least being honest about it.
0: And the book isn't um, party political, but if governments did put forward their ideas in that way, it would really help you decide who to vote for, wouldn't it? You, to have that real honest acceptance of the consequences of their policies.
1: Yeah, that's right. It'd be really
0: interesting. Yeah. Um, so I can't go through this and not ask about COVID-19. So in the preface, you do talk about COVID-19 and you say it's a dramatic example of both good and bad government regulation and um, the difficulties of government and government failures. And I think COVID shows the huge impact that governments can have on society and social welfare and the influence that governments do have. But talking about blame and individual blame in what ways have governments pushed responsibilities onto individuals during COVID-19 do you think?
1: Yeah I mean as you say I think it does show that government can make an enormous difference and, and again I will say you know expert opinion did differ at the beginning of the of the of the crisis and so you know government's did sort of follow some governments did follow different advice because of different different sort of types of advice, but we can see pretty you know that advice pretty clearly um, converged over time. Some government acted more more quickly than others. Covid, yeah. So COVID nineteen. So I mean, again, again, I don't want to say that individuals have no responsibility, but you know, with with COVID, I mean, if you yeah. if Government has regulations saying that, you know, self-isolation, well, individuals have got to self-isolate. People yeah. do have to take responsibility. There's nothing in the book that says that, you know, people, people, individuals don't bear any individual responsibility. Um, uh, but, again, let me just give you an example. In Australia, so here, people are advised to wear face masks, um, particularly on planes, and Qantas and internal flights provides them but you're not required to wear them. Now, I actually traveled on four planes a couple of weeks ago and you're given your mask at the door and you can see, you know, people, some people put it on, and you can see people coming on and they see people around them are wearing a mask and they put their mask on or they you can see them looking around no one else is wearing a mask so they don't put one on. It would be much, and in a sense, this is rational because masks are there to protect other people. So, you know, not only is it sort of social, you don't want to be so, socially different, but you know, you'd find it being rational. But, you know, it actually would be easy for everyone if you just told you got to wear a mask on a plane. Don't leave yeah. it up to individual to wear it. Just tell them you got to wear it. Yeah, um, and I think this is something which is silly to lead to individual responsibility. Um, And again, you know, you do hear some people people say, why should I be forced to wear a mask? You know, it's it's against a natural right or a basic freedom or something. I think this is just patently ludicrous. Arguments about personal liberty are about important issues, right? They're about things that affect our deep interests and our identities. They're not about trivial, about whether or not you should wear a mask during a pandemic.
0: Yeah but then when people don't and um, um, the infection rate goes up for example governments will always say well that's because individuals made the choice not to wear masks not because we didn't make a law to enforce people to wear masks. That's right. So your book is about how the governments blame their citizens for the consequences of the policies they implement um, and the fact that the blame lies the government ensures that the blame lies with individuals but the book doesn't really talk about why they do this why did you decide not to focus on this in the book
1: that's a nice question Uh, and I think it has a pretty straightforward answer in a sense my book is it isn't about the the cause of the government policy and to some extent that's why I say it's a book of political philosophy not political science if I was to write a book that was why do we get these policies bad policies you know if i were to write it under my political science hat it would probably be entitled it's special interest stupid uh, why governments do what their paymasters say or something like that but but yeah, i do want to note that explaining why governments say follow special interests and lobbying does not absolve government responsibility quite the reverse it might it might show why they do it but it doesn't absolve their responsibility
0: it doesn't change to know why doesn't change the argument of the book the problem is the fact they do it so my last question is what would you like to see happen as a result of the book um what should citizens be demanding and how should governments stand up and take responsibility for what they believe in
1: yeah i mean i would just like to see pressure put back on government by the public by the press by social commentators by academics i would like to see them telling them Government, you know, don't blame, don't blame your citizens. You know, I'd like to stand up and say, well, you keep on telling citizens to eat more healthily, but it has no effect. Why don't you do something about the food which is sold in the shops, which is the root, root cause of it? That's what I'd like commentators to say. That's what yeah. I like academics to say. Um, governments have been using nudge policies to try to change behaviour, sort of, you know, framing effects. Uh, uh, and these are fine for some things, but again, you know, actually regulations and taxes have a much bigger effect on, on policy. Look at smoking. Yeah. We were told how bad smoking was for a long time and it did have effect. It did have an effect. People, you know, smoking rates would, would be reduced. But it was it was tax policy and banning it in 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 shop in shops and pubs and you know in public, which has had the big effect on on smoking rates. So it's yeah. actually the stronger regulations which have the effect. Um persuasion will do something, but as I said, it'll largely be marginal. So I would like to see people to to, to, a, to to say to government, go out and, you know, do your job, do your job, regulate, make, actually make a difference, overcome this cult of personal responsibility, overcome this overwhelming ideology of individual liberty trumping all. Um, you know, you want to think about who gets the most out of, out of um, individual liberty. It's those that already got a lot. It's the, you know, it's the rich that can spend a lot of their time uh, doing what they want, which get the most out of the ideology of, 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 um, of of, of liberties of course we want to protect our important liberties but um, but what we need is protection from those who exploit and dominate us we have government actually in order to protect liberty we have government in order to enable us to have good choices and be able to do good things so you know government should stop protecting us from those people and those organizations which are dominating and exploiting us and and as, as i say in a sense I don't necessarily blame uh, firms for producing bad products when the market might lead them to produce bad products in order to, to sell more, because that's the game they're in. But I do blame government for allowing this to happen and not to regulate in a way to produce our markets in, into, a, into a better direction. Um, and again, I, as I say, it's not just the public I'd like to see the profession political philosophy talking about this more. I'd like to see social commentators talking about this more.
0: Yeah, we need to remember that the role of government is to protect us, isn't it? And um, we need to demand more from them. Yeah. That's brilliant, Keith. Thank you for talking to me. More information about Keith's book, It's the Government Stupid, is available from bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.